Welcome to To Every Generation, the broadcast ministry of Calvary Chapel Crossfields, located in Jamesburg, New Jersey, where we teach through the entire Bible, verse by verse, and make application to every generation so we can grow in our relationship with God. This morning we're going to be in Ezra 4. And the last time the sermon was titled, Got Revival? And basically we talked about what is revival, right? What was revival in the Bible? What was revival in the 1800s? What does revival look like today? Revival is very, very important when it comes to the Christian walk. Uh, it's really a part of the Christian walk. And, you know, what does God want me to do? Where do I fit in with revival? What is God's will for my life? These are all important questions. And today, the sermon title is Facing Opposition. So the children of Israel, they have this revival, and then they come into this spiritual warfare, this spiritual opposition. And we're going to see that in Ezra 4. And that's really what does happen. You know, we do live in a fallen world. We live in a fall, fallen world where Adam forfeited God's creation, was given to him. He forfeited to the enemy, Satan. And he does have his demons that are everywhere. And, um, you know, we are, it's an interesting thing because when we're born again, we're born again of the Spirit. We're redeemed spiritually, but we still live in these bodies of death. And how do we know that? Well, because we still go to funerals. So sometimes people say, well, the new believers, they go, well, I don't feel saved, right? God's doing a work inside of you. Remember, um, again, we're still part of this, this fallen world where we still live in these bodies of death, the flesh. So facing opposition. And this is what happens a lot of times when you stand up to serve God. So what did it mean for the children of Israel? It meant they were doing this incredible project. They were building the temple. They were building, you know, the city of Jerusalem. There was a lot of joy, a lot of excitement. Um, God needed to be in that. They wanted him to be in that. But they also had resistance from the outside. Well, what about us? Let's get real for a moment. At the end of the service last Sunday, I asked you, and I prayed, and I said, is there anybody here who wants to be filled more with the Holy Spirit, who, who um, you know, wants to be a part of revival, who wants to be used of God? And then I closed my eyes to pray. And when I picked up my head and opened my eyes, everybody was standing. I didn't expect that, but that's an awesome thing. So here's my question to you, and you can raise your hand if you like. If not, you can nod your head or not do anything. But between last Sunday and this Sunday, when you stood up and said, and you asked for prayer, and you said, I want to be part of what God is doing. I want to be a part of a work of God. How many of you, between last Sunday and today, faced spiritual opposition? Because I can tell you that I did. So I see some hands going up, some head shaking, and that's what happens. But God is greater than that. You know, so what are we going to do when we face opposition? Are we going to quit? Are we going to say, well, I didn't hear from God. Well, all those church people are better than me. Well, God doesn't care. No, we don't do that. We continue. We persevere. That's what we do as people of God. There's an expression that says that the, dark, that the night is the darkest just before daybreak. And that's so true. That's so true. So we continue to move. We continue to seek Him. We continue to ask him to use us and not wither because some spiritual opposition comes into play. And we're going to talk more about that at the end in my closing. But today we're going to talk about really five stages of opposition through the children of Israel. Watch what they dealt with. It's an amazing book. I mean, God's word is amazing. This is written some 2,500 years ago. I'm going to go through a little bit of history. But it could have been written yesterday or today for us. That's how powerful it is. And I'm going to show you that. I'm going to make that case. So in Ezra chapter 4, 
It says this, Now when the adversaries or the enemies of Judah and Benjamin, this was the southern kingdom of Israel, they're, they're being brought back from the Persian Empire, all historical fact, they heard that the descendants of the captivity were building the temple of the Lord God of Israel. They came to Zerubbabel and the heads of the father's houses and said to them, Let us build with you, for we seek your God as you do, your God. Keep that in mind. And we have sacrificed to him since the days of Esarhaddon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. Historical note. But Zerubbabel and Jeshua and the rest of the heads of the father's houses of Israel said to them, you may, you may do nothing with us to build a house for our God, but we alone will build to the Lord God of Israel as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. Sounds a little snarky, but I'm going to make the case for why that was using discernment. Then the people of the land cried to discourage, they tried to discourage the people of Judah. They troubled them in building and hired counselors against them to frustrate their purposes all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. So the first thing we see is the opposition enters. That's the first stage. Here it comes. Lord, we want to serve you. Lord, we are on fire for you. Jesus started his public ministry, what? With going into the wilderness and facing temptation from Satan himself, the king of the tempters. Right? That's how his ministry started. Talk about starting out with a bang. Of course, Jesus opposed all those temptations. But the temptation here is really to compromise. Again, if you're in a relationship, compromise is good. If you are trying to walk a certain way with God and you have influences that are trying to bring you down, compromise is bad. So the Holy Spirit tells us right in the beginning that those pretending to help were actually enemies of God. Now, we have a word for that in our culture today. We call that frenemies. You've heard that before, right? Uh, some of us have frenemies, but, you know, is, are they really my friends or are they really my enemies? <laughs> we also see that they say, we seek your God. We have sacrificed to him since the days of Esarhaddon, king of Assyria. So who was Esarhaddon? Well, the Assyrians came down in roughly 722 B.C. and they attacked the northern kingdom. They overcame. They took the people. Um, made them slaves, made them captives, sent them into the Assyrian dynasty. They expatriated them. And then they brought their pagan people into Israel. And it was very clever in a a devious sort of way. It was to dilute the faith. It was to dilute the nationalism of the Israelites. And it actually worked. It actually worked. And if you follow the kings of... Now this is amazing because the Old Testament speaks about these historical kings. Go home, go on your encyclopedia, your internet or whatever, and you can find all these historical figures, right? Tiglath-Peleser, Shalmaneser, Sargon, Sennacherib. We've heard all these if we've read the Bible. Esarhaddon, which he speaks about. After Esarhaddon came Ashurbanipal, a few more kings, and then the Assyrians were dominated by the Babylonians, and then the Babylonians were dominated by the Persians. This is amazing because... All the way into John chapter 4 in the New Testament, Jesus is also now dealing with this situation. The woman at the well, she's a Samaritan, right? And basically, he has a discussion with her, and she starts talking to the Lord Jesus about faith, but she's so confused. And we see that today in our places of work, even with our family members. The holidays are coming up. You're going to meet family members and see them that you probably haven't seen in months. 
and we're going to have, you probably have discussions about faith and about God. And some of them, it's just a hodgepodge of belief systems. It's all confusing. Jesus, in John chapter 4, helped the Samaritan woman to regain a real understanding of who God is. Because she was wrong. And you know what, today, nobody's wrong. You know, we live in a pluralistic culture. Everybody's right. And if you tell somebody the truth, you risk offending them, or you risk even losing your job in some cases. But Jesus loved her. He, now, he said it lovingly. He was gentle with her, but he corrected her. She was messed up in her belief system. This is what I love about the Bible. It's so intertwined at different periods, different languages, different authors, and it all comes together. And what, what do we do? We go out and we buy a Bible. We buy a book. It was never like that. 66 vellum, parchment, animal skin, scrolls, pieces of, and, and all put together but they all agree with each other. And that's part of my job in this culture. I believe in this area, especially the Princeton area, my job is to push back against society that's telling you you believe something stupid. It's archaic. It's, it's been disproven. Well, I'm here to show you the opposite because those type of people, usually when I deal with them, I'm like, so give me some instances. Oh, but, 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 and they start stammering because this is just the junk that they've heard. And this is in, in the colleges too, in academia. Your kids need to know what they believe before you send them off to college. And don't just assume, because it's a Christian college, that everything that's taught is scripturally accurate. Parents, we need to do our, our jobs. We need to do our jobs, okay? So, Zerubbabel and the leaders, they didn't want pluralism. Some in Christianity today embrace pluralism. It doesn't matter what you believe. Yes, it does matter, because that determines where you'll spend eternity. And we talked a little bit about that last Sunday at the end. God's people need to be discerning. Discerning. We need to, you know, you, walk, you turn on the TV, you, you know, look on social media, look on your phones, and you get, you get bombarded with all this garbage. What's truth and what's not truth? Truth is very important because it's the lifeblood of what holds us together. It also is the lifeblood of what we believe. When we get to be in the presence of God, you better be in his presence based on truth. You know what I'm saying? I watched a, a sh and because I <laughs> don't want to get political, but I watched a show last night from a, a libertarian. He wasn't for Trump, he wasn't for Clinton. And he said, this is what the media does. They show you, and he showed a picture. And, and they had, a, this was a, one of the major newspapers, and it was a headline. Made everybody believe what they were saying was true. Then he actually showed a video that somebody took, and he said, the, the picture is misleading. It's not showing you all the angles doesn't matter. Millions of people read the paper. They believe what they see. In the paper, on TV, we're being bombarded, folks, with garbage. We really are. We have to be discerning. We have to question things. We live in the age of misinformation and deception. Okay? In general, I would just say this. Be careful, and I've said this before, what or who you think you need. I know my wife has taught that in the women's groups. But Christians will compromise and their faith will become diluted when they make unholy alliances. Keep that in mind. That's tough because God made us social creatures. Nobody wants to lose friends, not even on Facebook. You know what I'm saying? Somebody unfriended me. I'm so depressed today. I'm like, listen, I, I'll see that and I'm like, I don't have time to go through my scroll of friends. Live. Whatever. Somebody unfriended me. It's okay. I'll, I'll be fine. I'll get over it. I'll make it through the night. But, but, you know, but this is what's going on. I mean, Zerubbabel was not going, listen, do you, don't you think, listen, okay, <laughs> let me back up, I get too excited, I get ahead of myself. 
I showed you the, the images, the ruins, and those ruins are horrible. Big stones turned over, rubble everywhere, dirt. So you're the man of God or the woman of God, and you're coming to fix this, to do a work, and it's just a mess. And, you know, the idea is, well, I just need, I need some help. So Rebbe and Joshua needed help. But they weren't going to do it at the expense of compromise. So the project will take a little longer. So it'll be a little tougher. Folks, how desperate are we in our own lives for help? At what expense? How desperate are we sometimes for companionship? But at what expense? Right? Thankfully, Zerubbabel and the leaders weren't looking for just numbers like even many ministries do today. Some ministries, some churches are hyper-focused on numbers. It's all they, it's obsessing. They'll bring in secular companies to do a, an evaluation of the church and give them, and I've seen this in Calvary's worldly methods to bring people in. Let it grow naturally. Zerubbabel was not desirous of in- infiltrators. And, and there's nothing wrong with us sometimes to say, in a lovingly way, listen, I'm not, I'm not, I, I, just like Jesus with the woman at the well, I meet a stranger and they're all messed up with their faith and, and I just try to sit with them and be patient and piece it together and help them to understand, start somewhere, get a foundation and start to build it from there. It's what we do, but not for compromise and not for dilution just for the sake of making friends. Verse 4, I'll read this again. I know I read it. It says, the people of the land try to discourage the people of Judah. Same people, we want to help you. Didn't take long, right? They troubled them in building and hired counselors against them to frustrate their purpose all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. So they couldn't get them from the inside, so they try to destroy them from the outside. And that's what Satan does. You live long enough as a Christian, you know. He constantly uses the carrot and the stick, the carrot and the stick. Let's tempt him. Oh, you resisted the temptation. Now let's hit him. Hit him hard. Hit her hard. Spiritual opposition. Or maybe you're good with dealing with trials. Maybe you're Teflon when it comes to not worrying about what people think or do to you. But then he gets you with the carrot. He gets you with the temptation. That's what he does. He keeps flipping these two things back and forth until he takes you off your feet, takes you off your game, you know, dilutes your faith. You know what's amazing is how much you can learn from somebody's character after you say no, right? Hey, everybody, we're friends, everybody, hey, let's do this, or I want you to do that, or I would like to do, would you let me do, uh, no. You could even say with a smile and nicely, and all of a sudden their countenance changes, their true colors come out, and that's what happens in this situation. If they really supported the work of God, then no wouldn't be an obstacle. Well, okay, I understand, you know, maybe in the future, maybe I'll try again or somewhere, or maybe you could pray about it. Not. They went right to the attack mode. Now, what did I say in in the beginning? I said, Zerubbabel, the way he answered them, some might say, well, that's harsh. Well, that's not nice. Sometimes we'll come off as not nice, but actually what's really not nice and harsh is allowing something to come into the church or, or a work of God and to start to ruin it and take it apart. That's really, really worse. So it says in verse 5, the opposition comes from or goes from Cyrus the king to Darius the king. If we could put up an image of the timeline, so I'm going to bring you back to high school, maybe college history. I hope you don't mind for a few minutes. I have two images. 
So the first one's going to come up, and it's going to basically give us a timeline. Persian kings who ruled over the Jewish people and other conquered peoples in the Bible. Remember, it was Assyrians were big back in the day, didn't really conquer a whole lot of territory. Uh, Babylonians were even bigger, took over from them, the Persians, the Greeks, and then the Romans, and then most of us were up to speed. If we don't know our ancient history, what happens at least after the 3rd century A.D.? So basically what you have here is, first comes Cyrus. Now he ruled, I think, 550 to 530, but 539 is when he conquered Babylon. So for our purposes, Cyrus the king, he's the big guy. He, he goes under the Euphrates River, diverts it, um, gets into the Babylonian palace, and he wreaks havoc. And he's now the new, new guy in town. His decree, notable decrees, the first wave of repatriating Jews to Judah and building the temple. He, God softens his heart, 538 B.C. He sends the Jews back west, past the Tigris and the Euphrates, starts to rebuild the temple again. Key leaders under Cyrus's day were Zerubbabel and Joshua, who we're reading about. Cambyses came next. Um, this was, these were his dates. Um, so basically over here, Ahasuerus, and I'm going to cover kind of the different titles that they, they had, and some of them had the same title, so it gets confusing. Darius one, Darius two, Artaxerxes one, Artaxerxes two. I'm not going to confuse you with all that. Just basically talk to you about five or six of them that had to do with this situation. So Cambyses takes over from Cyrus, 530 BC to 522. Notable events, he conquers Egypt and dies en route to stop a coup from this guy, Pseudo-Smyrtus, Bardiya, Gautama. He had different names because he was an imposter. He tried to take the Persian throne. (laughs) He didn't get very far because he only ruled for less than a year. They found him out. Uh, Name also Artaxerxes. Again, I'm going to cover that name. But he was an imposter who took the throne, killed by the Persian aristocracy. They got wise to him, realized he was an imposter, this happened in Rome and Greece. Um, doesn't happen in American politics yet, but basically, give it time. <laughs> so, so they all got together and they, they whacked him, so to speak. Okay, he was done. Uh, Darius won Histaspes. Histaspes was his father's name. Uh, and we'll see that some of these names and titles, they would take a secondary name. We see this also in the first century when we go through the different disciples and how they named people. Very different than we're named. Uh, this is his time that he ruled... Uh, he was called Darius the Great. These guys loved themselves, you know, their accomplishments, and they had these very lofty names for themselves. The temple was completed under his rule. Uh, we're going to see that in the next chapter, Ezra 5 and 6. If we can go to the next slide. Before I get to these two guys, um, so if you're interested, there's what's called transliteration. So a name starts in a certain empire, say the Persians, goes to the Greeks, goes to the Hebrews, and they take that name and Instead of really translating it, they transliterate it. They take the name and try to make it fit with their alphabet and their letter. So the Hebrew, or let's, let's start with the Persian. The Persians, okay, um, the name was Kasha Yarsha, which meant ruler of, of heroes. In Hebrew, they took Kasha Yarsha and made it Ahashveras, where in English, it's Ahashuerus. If you read the book of Esther, oh, now it makes sense. It starts to come to, to play here. Ahashuerus really means mighty man chief. The Greeks, remember, morphing from Babylon to Persia to Greek, the Greek name or translation was Xerxes, which means kings. So Ahasuerus, Artaxerxes, and Xerxes were just really titles, sort of like Pharaoh. There were a lot of Pharaohs. You know, it's funny, you read the Old Testament, oh, this Pharaoh, he's here. Well, Pharaoh's over there. Pharaoh's everywhere. He, Pharaoh's lived for hundreds of years. No, he hasn't. Pharaoh was the title of the king of Egypt. So Pharaoh Nietzsche, 
very famous Pharaoh, took his forces, mustered together, and fought King Josiah of Judah in the plains of Megiddo. So very famous Pharaoh. There's a lot of different Pharaohs. Uh, okay, let's see, where are we here? A lot of names here. <laughs> so let's go, so let's continue for after Darius. Ahasuerus or Xerxes I, these were his years. Check it out. How does the Bible mesh with history? Well, very famous battle of Thermopylae. Remember, the Spartans, the 300 in the Thermopylae Pass, held off tens of thousands of Persians, a real event. The movies embellish. There wasn't millions of them, but it was a certain, they, they really, I'm trying to find a, a nice word, they really made a mess of the, the Persian army. Uh, Xerxes goes back in defeat and then has this beauty contest because he's so depressed that he lost, and he, he drowns himself in his misery in his harem. And that's where the book of Esther comes in, where she actually ends up in the royal court. Fascinating stuff. Okay, so he was called Xerxes the Great. After him was Artaxerxes I. These were his dates. Encompasses both Ezra and Nehemiah's work, which we covered. Second and third repatriation. So under Artaxerxes I, great guy. God softens his heart. He sends the Jews back. Again, secular history. Look it up. It's all in there. Well, they can't explain how this happened. Well, they can't explain how such an incredible leader would not only send the Jews back, but give them you know, gifts and stuff and gold and let them rebuild. And so the secularists can't understand it. It doesn't compute because this is not what great leaders do. But we know that the Bible said that the Bible softened the hearts of the leaders of the Persians. Okay, Artaxerxes I, also known as Longimanus, uh, the temple walls and gates were completed. Ezra 7 through 10, Daniel 9's prophecy. This is amazing right here. If we go back to the first screen... So in Daniel 9's prophecy, Daniel actually tells the Jews, um, basically under this domination, how many days it would take before the Messiah would actually step foot on the earth. That's why when Jesus came, literally people were leaving their boats, they were leaving their businesses, Matthew left the tax collector, everybody's leaving to follow Jesus. And you read the Bible and you say, what a fairy tale. Not until you understand what Daniel 9's prophecy was. Every good observant Jew who studied the scripture knew that any day now, the Messiah is going to show up. That's why they started following him. Impressive, isn't it? When you know this kind of stuff, this helps you when you deal with your friends and your loved ones that you want to see saved, but you don't know how to articulate. Send me an email. Talk to me afterwards. I'd be more than happy to send you my uh, material. It was a little cleaner initially, uh, but what happened was it when it transferred to the slide, it got a little messy, but I would love to talk to me about this. Ask me. I don't understand. I'm confused. I'll send it to you. Not a problem. So that's what you have. So basically what happens is from Cyrus, the opposition, you know, all the way through Darius or Darius I, Darius the Great. Verse 6. You get all that? There's going to be a quiz after service. <laughs> Verse 6. Now in the reign of Ahasuerus, in the beginning of his reign, they wrote an accusation against the inhabitants of Judah and Jerusalem. So what this does is, this chapter chronicles all the assaults, all the attacks, right? Stop this work. We don't want to see the temple built. Later on under Nehemiah, we don't want to see the walls built. So that you see verse 6. The second stage of opposition is the opposition now increases and becomes unrelenting. Now, you and I know, if you've been Christians long enough, sometimes we get attacked. Maybe it's by a person. Maybe it's by a group of people. Maybe it's by people we thought we were our friends. And really what they're, dis they're despising in you is your desire to take it up a notch and really serve the Lord. 
but what happens is you, you sometimes say when you're in the middle of this thing, you go, when's it going to end? Next week, you thought it would end. Next week, it gets worse. Next month, be, and you're in this season of a trial. And you're like, Lord, I can't take much more of this. You've been a Christian long enough. Trust me, I've been there. And you're like, it's got to stop at some point. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Um, they, what's left? I'm just taking my life at this point. You see what I'm saying? So it's, it happened with them. It happens with us. So right on through the succession of the kings, the enemies of God were trying to get the work to stop. Now, if you've been a believer long enough, you know that at times your enemies... Now, let's just... The Bible says we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. The tendency is to have vitriol or hatred for somebody coming against you. But remember, they're being deceived by the enemy. And truthfully, it would be great if they got saved because then you would be simpatico. You know what I'm saying? You'd be compadre, so to speak. So let me just make sure that I don't say something that's not accurate. We, we, don't, we desire anyone who's coming against us to get saved. You know, we love the person. We love the soul. But it's hard sometimes because their character and their personality is just so nasty that, it, you know, you're like, Lord, I want to forgive. I want to love them. This is really, really difficult. Jesus mastered that, but he's also the son of God. But he also said that we could master this. Right? Not an easy thing. I'm going to be straight up and honest with you. So at times, your enemy will send a salvo of artillery fire your way. Every trick in the book. There is a, there is a spirit in our culture. And this is where, when you, when you say to me, Pastor Joe, you know, America is so divided. There's a spirit that's working its way through this country. And even Christians are succumbing to it. It's dividing us. We're being divided among political lines, among lifestyles, among geography. And we have to resist that. We're supposed to be the ones that are trying to bring people together. I studied um, governments and, you know, economics and different things in college. And Really, it's a spirit of Marxism. If you ever study the work of Karl Marx and Friedrich Engels and watch how Marxism has morphed over time, it's a spirit of divisiveness. You get people to fight against each other, then you can control them easily. You increase poverty, you can control the poor. This is the opposite of what academia is teaching, by the way, in the colleges. But here, I'm t they don't know anything about spiritual realm. They just see surface. But I'm here to tell you what's below the surface. And this Marxist strain is run through our politics. It's even attacked the church. And it says, we want to change you. We don't like your faith. We don't like what you believe. We're going to make you a pariah. We're going to humiliate you. We're going to get you fired. That's what that spirit is doing. As a matter of fact, I was reading about a group that demanded that Catholic schools remove their crosses because they're offensive. Are you kidding me? Go to another school. Or start your own school. You know, okay, if it's somebody that didn't know the Lord, I wouldn't say that. I'd be nicer than that. I'd try to lead them to Christ and explain to them what the cross represents. I hope that the, these schools don't cave because this is what the Spirit does. It tries to attack. It tries to degrade. It tries to bring down. It's in our country. It's in you. Or, sorry, it goes to attack you, and it also tries to attack Christian orthodoxy. You can't possibly believe that. Okay, I just here showed you how something written so long ago not only affects us today, but is, is can be proven through... through and I, last Sunday, I went through some archaeology. I had some pictures of the Cyrus Cylinder and all these things that they found in, in the Middle East. Pretty fascinating stuff. 
But this spirit, I have news for you, it's not going to subside. These are the birth pangs that Jesus speaks about. This is going to continue until the end times. Okay? Because the Antichrist, when he does come, will use that division and the wars and the, and the people are just going to cry out. We just want a leader that just gives us peace and he's going to usher in that false peace. Right? You can see how the elites, these shadowy figures, it's not conspiracy theory, it's fact. Now that we have the internet, now that we have, it's really hard to escape some of this stuff because you can easily connect the dots. How their desire is to control the masses. All the stupid people like us on the bottom while they run everything. You know, all right, so let me continue. I have some things in my mind that I have to do in a microsecond. Is that from the Holy Spirit or is that from me? That just got ushered out. So we're going to move in. It's not easy doing this, but, you know, thank you, Lord. But sometimes God allows trials to test our resolve. Okay? So we, 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 nobody likes a trial. I'll raise my hand. I don't like any trials. I, wanted, I like to be comfortable and in my routine. That's me. So trials come like, oh, here comes another one. Tests our resolve. Other times, God is agreeing with you. Last week, we all stood up. I want to use you, but there's some things in your life I have to change. I can't use you like this. God is the, ult- he's the sculptor. That, that doesn't look good. Pastor Vinny's skit, right? A few weeks ago, he had the, the youth group come up and they did a skit for us. The chisel. He's like that ultimate chisel, chiseler. Does it feel good when we get chiseled? No, it doesn't. Nevertheless, if he's going to use us, he has to use us the way he wants to use us, not the way we want to be used. Okay? The enemy is, is resolved to destroy the work of God. Are we equally resolved to preserve it, to keep it going, to see it accomplished? And let me tell you something. There is an element in Christianity, quite frankly, that's whiny and defeatist. Whiny and defeatism is not from the Lord. Whiny and defeatism is not doing it by the power of the Holy Spirit. And we have to, when that, ha- and listen, it's a temptation. It's one of those temptations. We need to usher it aside and, and focus on the Lord. Verse 7, continuing. He says, in the days of Artaxerxes also, Bishlam, Mithridath, Tabil, and the rest of their companions wrote to Artaxerxes, king of Persia, and the letter was written in Aramaic script and translated into the Aramaic language. So there's a portion of scripture where it's actually, you can't tell because it's English, but it started out in Hebrew, moved to Aramaic, and the Bible translators just translated it all into English. So there's a, a shift here. They're sending the information now to the king. And they're certainly not going to send it in Hebrew. Rehim, the commander in Shimshai, uh, the scribe, wrote a letter against Jerusalem, against Jerusalem to King Artaxerxes in the following, in this fashion. From Rehim, the commander, Shimshai, the scribe, and the rest of their companions, representatives of the Dinaites and the Afarashiites, the Tarpalites, the people of Persia, and Eric and Babylon, and Shushan, the Deavites, and the Elamites, and the rest of the nations whom the great and noble Osnapper took captive, funny names, aren't they? <laughs> Osnapper. And took captive and settled in the cities of Samaria and the rest of the region beyond the river, and so forth. This is a copy of the letter they sent to him. So the enemies now are writing to Artaxerxes. So first they try to go in the inside, then they try to attack him from the outside, then they say, you know what, let's keep going higher and higher above their heads to try to get this work of God to stop. This is where I believe, because if you look at the, if you look at the chart, um, 
Artaxerxes I is down here. However, remember, Artaxerxes I and then Longimanus was the guy who sent the Jews back to rebuild under Nehemiah. I believe that this was a general term, great king for Pseudo-Smyrtus. Because if you follow it chronologically, under Darius, the temple's completed. So for the Bible student, we could either look at it as, as just trying to get all the names straight. Another way to look at it, which I don't know if they're both plausible, is that basically, and when we, when we read something, we read it in chronological order. You read an article, you read a book, it makes more sense. It just is easier for us to follow time when it's in linear fashion. When the Bible, whether it's the Old Testament or the prophecies, was written, it would, there really is not necessarily a chronology at some times, especially with the prophets. Because when God looks at everything, he sees he's outside of time. He's not bound by linear time. We are. So like in Isaiah and Jeremiah, sometimes you read it, and you, you, if you try to, in your mind, I've got to follow this chronologically, you're going to get confused. Revelation, the book of Revelation, I love Revelation. It'll give chronology and then it'll stop and then it'll blow up one of the judgments. The seal judgments, the trumpet judgments, the bowl judgments. At times, it'll just take one of those judgments and devote a few chapters to it. And you might say, I'm confused. No, there's no confusion. It's blowing it up to really focus on that particular situation. So we continue. Verse 9. The enemies proudly introduced themselves to the king. So they write this letter, and they all want to make sure they're represented on this letter to the king. They're proud of their sin. You know? When you attack somebody, when you know something's right, and you attack them because you have something against them personally, or maybe you sometimes people discriminate because of fear, not understanding, and you attack that person. You see what I'm saying? This is sinful behavior. And these people are proud of their sin. They're openly saying, hey, we're on the letter. Make sure you send the king. Make sure you put my name down there too. All these different people. But it's kind of interesting because I look at this and, and how can we bring this to, to our lives? You ever meet a troublemaker who, maybe it's in your workplace. I'm sure we've all experienced this. Like, they're like the pipeline, so to speak. They want to get you in trouble or make themselves look good. So what they'll go is they'll go to the boss and they'll close the door and they'll whisper, hey, this one's not doing that. Hey, that one did that. And you said, you're right to get in tight with authority. In other words, king, look, we're giving you good information on these people. And again, a twofold advantage. Number one, to get the temple and the mission to stop and also to ingratiate themselves with authority at the same time. Again, opposition many times will test us and it'll test our faith. So let me ask you this question. Are you going to let it win? Are you going to let that opposition take you down? Are you going to stand up and ask the Lord to use you and then you have a bad week and you say, you know what, I'm not doing it anymore. And I, and I say this often. Our, our lives are very diverse. Some of us are into sports, some of us are into academics, some of us are into both, some of us are into theater. I mean, all kinds of things, you know, video games, whatever your thing is. And we do many different things, into animals. When you start a hobby, does it, does it come quickly? Does it come right away? I remember when I started beekeeping. 
that was, man, there's crazy bees are flying all over the place. I, I, I moved the thing too quickly, and they all come out, and they want to sting me. This is nuts. What am I doing? But after a few years, I got the hang of it. So whether you, you're a skier or you're into video games or you're into beekeeping, whatever it is, do we give up right away when something doesn't go our way? No, because we, we're interested. So why would we do any less with the things of God? I love my bees, but I don't know if they're going to be there in the kingdom. It's up to God, you know what I'm saying? I think they're pretty cool. But I don't know. So I put the majority of my effort into the things of God because I know that's going to stand the test of eternity. Right? So I just want to encourage you with this. I'm not talking down. I'm, not, I'm just trying to make a logical understand, representation for why we do things or we don't do things. God is eternal. The things of God just keep going forever and ever and ever. So I just would say, as, as, as much as we're, we persevere in other things, we should be more perseverant when it comes to the things of God. Amen? Amen. All right. Verse 11. This is a copy of the letter. So here's the letter, and this is basically the body of the letter. To King Artaxerxes from your servants, the men of the region beyond the river, and so forth, let it be known to the king that the Jews who came up from you have come to us at Jerusalem, and they're building a rebellious and evil city. <laughs> Remember they wanted to help with that rebellious and evil city? <laughs> and are finishing its walls and repairing the foundations. Let it be known to the king that if this city is built and the walls completed, they will not pay tax, tribute, or custom, and the king's treasury will be diminished. Now, because we receive support from the palace, it is not proper for us to see the king's dishonor. How nice of them. <laughs> Therefore... We have sent and informed the king that a search may be made in the book of the records of your fathers and you will find in the book of the records and know that this city is a rebellious city, harmful to the kings and provinces and that they have incited sedition within the, king, within the city in former times for which cause the city was destroyed. They know their history. We inform the king that if this city is rebuilt and its walls are completed, the result will be that you will know you will have no dominion over the region beyond, beyond the river. You, you're going to have king, you're going to have no control. These people, it's... So the third stage is here is the, the opposition gets personal. The opposition comes in, the opposition increases, now the opposition gets personal. Demonization of these people. They're bad people. Don't let them do this. And this is how you get others against your opponent. Definitely apropos in this election cycle, <laughs> demonization, right? Verse 12... He says, this is a rebellious and evil city. This was a, really a personification of the Jews. It's a nice way of saying it. The city in itself is innocuous. But those people in that city, they are bad people. They're going to become tax cheats. You're not going to get tribute. You're, not going, to get, you're going to lose control. But hey, um, the Jews went from hero to a zero in a short amount of time. Has that ever happened to you? It's happened to me. You know what I'm saying? I mean, I can even find things that were written about me and some of the pastors and in month one you're like next to jesus christ in month five you're next to satan himself you know and how does that happen i haven't changed you know what i'm saying people are nutty they do weird things and we live in an age where you can just put anything on the internet on social media with impunity because of free speech it happens if they can't weaken you with flattery and compromise, they will try to destroy you with trials. And sometimes I don't know which one is worth, worse. And here, here's um, some of you um, want to become leaders and pastors, and here's some advice to you. If you want to be in leadership in anything, especially in the church, expect you're going to be attacked. And don't wither when it happens. 
just say, it's just going to happen at some point. And when it happens, remember my words. If you're doing it right, you may be excoriated. It doesn't mean you do things differently. You don't bend to public, public opinion. Politicians do that. They bend with the political winds. You know, they, they, I don't know how you do that. And then they lie, and then they change their positions, and it just, to me, I, I watch some of these politicians. I couldn't live like that. I'd have anxiety, just constantly shifting and moving. And what did you say last week? What did you say last month? Well, it's changed. Well, it's going to change the next month. Jesus expects different from us especially if you want to be in leadership, don't have this desire to be liked all the time. What did Jesus say? He says, Woe to you when all men speak well of you, so they did to the false prophets. Do you want to be in that category? I don't. And I see this in ministry. Pastors, they insulate themselves. They don't deal with people because you can't really attack somebody personally if you don't deal with them personally. You know, some admittedly will say, well, my ministry is just to say positive things all the time. Well, then you, that's not ministry. You're a self-help person. And that's great. There's need for that. But don't call yourself a pastor. Okay? So these are the things that we look at. Verse 14. They say, it isn't proper for us to see the king's dishonor like they care about the king's dishonor. <laughs> yeah. Let me just say this as well to somebody who is a, a manager, a CEO, you run your own business. Be suspicious of the person who's always coming to you and asking for private meetings and telling on their employees. You know what's really sad? Some bosses like this. I've seen it. They like it. They like the pipeline. They like that person that always comes up because they want to maintain control. If you're a person of God, let God deal with that. Because when you try to deal with control all the time, it can make you crazy. And it makes you ineffective in your decision-making. And I've seen leaders who, who somebody is a bad report about an employee and then they go to discipline them and then they, they're embarrassed. So take it with a grain of salt, leaders. Somebody comes to you and they're always snitching. Be suspicious of that and, and don't seek it. It's not good. Verse 15, he does say, or the letter says, check the history of the city. It's a rebellious city. It has a very rebellious past, sedition harmful to the kings of the past. And you know what? They were actually right. That was the truth. They had a past. But don't we all? I have a past. You know what I'm saying? But they repented. There was no indication they would do it again. Furthermore, the ones who, if, if they were even still alive, were so elderly, they weren't going to be able to get together and start this rebellion. These were new people. Are you going to blame somebody for what their fathers and grandfathers did? Sometimes our, our sins come back to haunt us. But you know what? God doesn't see it like that. When we've repented and we come to the cross, we're new creatures in Christ. So you, if you have people that are on your back, you know what? Take heart. You're a believer. You're a new believer. God sees you differently than they do. Don't own the pejoratives. Don't own the attacks. Don't own the character assassination. What does the Bible say? I would say this too, that maybe if you have a past, Pray about a time making a testimony of it. I actually tell many a times what, well, some of the things I did. <laughs> I didn't know the Lord before I was a Christian. Teen years, college years. If you want to hear a funny story? <laughs> a, a while back, a, a gentleman and his wife came to our church, and he knew me from college. So he looked at me and he goes, you're the pastor? <laughs> he, he just got, kept staring at me. I'm like, 
pinch me, it's really me, I'm the pastor. And you know what? They were a wonderful compliment to our church. The only reason why they left is because they moved pretty far away. But it was funny, and I, we had a good laugh. You're the pastor? I remember you from college. Yeah. So, but listen, it's... You, you think that's really funny? <laughs> I didn't kill anybody. I just want you to know that. But I, I turned it into a testimony. I mean, I have months and years of tapes of CDs where I tell you little by little some of the stuff I did. I'm changed. I'm different. And, and they loved the church, you know what I'm saying? But he was, for a while, he just kept staring at me, you know? So, you know what? Don't, don't put it past anybody to get saved. Just keep that in mind. Even that person that you're, you're praying for and it's been years and you're wearing with and they aggravate you and they're... I've heard so many stories. Employ, you know, it's... God is good. Verse 17. Then the king sent an answer. So the king responds. He does his research. To Rehim the commander, to Shimshai the scribe, to the rest of their companions who dwell in Samaria, and to the rest of the region beyond the river. Peace, and so forth. The letter which you sent to us has been clearly read before me, and I gave the command, and a search has been made. I checked the archives. And it was found that this city in former times has made insurrection against kings. And that rebellion and sedition have been fostered in it. Remember, this isn't Cyrus. So this is another king who maybe didn't even, you know, he's, he was young when Cyrus conquered. He's a boy. Um, he becomes king over a period of time. He, he has no familiarity with the Jews. All he knows is, hey, this is the Persian Empire. So he does some research and he realizes, wow, these people, they did some crazy stuff back then and they were really naughty. You know what I'm saying? Verse 20. There have also been mighty kings over Jerusalem who have ruled over all the provinces beyond the river and tax, tribute, and custom were paid to them. Now give the command to make these men cease that this city may not be built until the command is given by me. Take heed now that you do not fail to do this. Why should damage increase to, to the hurt of the kings? Four, the fourth stage, opposition leads to defeat. Sad. And we may have times where we say, Lord, I want to be used. And you're on fire and the Lord's using you and something happens and the door closes in your face or people turn against you. You're like, wait a minute, Lord, I don't... And this is the crisis sometimes that Christians go through because God doesn't always, you know, every night he, you know, he opens up the roof and He says, hey, I'm here again. Let me tell you what things are going to be like in the next few years. It doesn't happen like that. You know, that's why we, we, we have faith. We trust in Him. And, and I can tell you in hindsight, I can... I can put all the puzzle pieces back together 10 years ago. Not a problem from 10 years in the future. But when it's happening, you don't know. You don't understand. It can be confusing at times. The king foolishly buys into the lies that were born out of the, last, out of the sins of the past. And that's what the world, the flesh, and the devil will do to us. And I say the flesh because sometimes the biggest opposition is the person you see in the mirror. Sometimes the biggest opposition for my life is the person I'm looking at in the mirror. You know, insecurities and, you know, stuff like that or trying to maybe owning character assassination, assassinations. Can't do that stuff. It's almost like a tug of war with God. God's like, I want to use you. I found you worthy. Oh, no, I'm not worthy. You don't understand. What do you mean? I'm God. I don't understand. What are you talking about? I made you. You know what I'm saying? I'm just going to do a little work with you and do some chiseling. Yeah, but you, everybody says I'm worthless. You move on to somebody else. That's a foolish conversation. But it's had. Maybe not in those particular words. God sees us clean when we come to the cross. That's the beautiful thing about coming to the cross. So if you're here this morning and there's something, you're like, you know what, I, I desire this, this 
God, I don't I'm fully understand. Jesus died for my sins. It's, it's, it's tangible. It's available to you. Trust me. Well, you don't understand. What, I don't want to know what you did in the past. That's between you and the Lord. Verse 23. Last two verses. Now, when the copy of King Artaxerxes' letter was read before Rehem, Shimshai, the scribe, and the companions, they went up in haste to Jerusalem against the Jews. They couldn't wait. They came up in haste. And by force of arms made them cease. Thus the work of the house of God, which is at Jerusalem, ceased. And it was discontinued until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. The fifth stage. The work comes to a screeching halt, and the opposition wins. Or did it? Or did it? What do we do in the face of opposition? What do we do when we think that God was in it And by all empirical standards, things that we can see, everything stops. Do we wither? Do we accept it? Do we give up? Or do we get up? This is a point of crisis, folks. It's a crossroads. Do we quit? Or do we persevere? And we persevere, why? Because it's a personal thing, it's a personal affront. I'm going to show them, no. We persevere because we know that God is in it. And I've seen this. A work of ministry start and then stop. And God says, yes, but not now. I have to work a bunch of things you'll see. I love it in the, in the prophecies when God says in the, to the prophets, I'm going to do a work that you would not believe unless you saw it. He would say this to his most faithful men. You're not going to believe it. But this is going to happen. And they had to trust him. Well, in Ezra 5, the good news is, I'll give a little bit of away, away, is the work of God continues. There's still opposition. There's still spiritual warfare. And that spiritual warfare, i got news for you, carries all the way through history through the book of Nehemiah. As I said, and I actually failed to mention when I asked everyone to stand if you want to be used by God, I failed to mention the opposition. I saved that for this week. But take heart. Take heart. Your, your Ezra 5 might be right around the corner. It might be next week. It might be next year. See, we're okay with hours, days, weeks, months. We don't like to hear years. It's just a time thing. I don't got time. I'm young. You know, I, anything could happen. Your Ezra 5 might be right around the corner. So I want to encourage you, don't quit, don't give up. Don't give up on God, and don't give up on yourself. Keep moving and keep seeking Him. Let's pray. You've been listening to To Every Generation from Calvary Chapel Crossfield. We're located at 15 Half Acre Road in Jamesburg, New Jersey. We meet for Bible study Wednesdays at 7.30 p.m. and Sunday service begins at 10.30 a.m. On Sundays, we have children's church for all ages in addition to infant and nursery care. You can find out more about the ministry here at Calvary Chapel Crossfields by going to cccrossfields.org. Thanks for listening and may God bless you.